0: All right, we are finishing up Exodus 14 today, starting in verse 15. The title of our message is The Crushing of the Dragon in the Midst of the Sea. And as you're turning to Exodus 14, please remember that God's word, this infallible, holy, authoritative, inerrant word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel and there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging, clogging, to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked "...on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians... So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, just as your cloud was with the Israelites on that day, leading them, guiding them, protecting them, and it was the spirit of your son We pray that your same spirit would visit us right now, that we may have ears to hear and eyes to see the glory of this liberation day. For we know, Lord, that it is a foreshadowing of ours. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We were talking in the prayer room right before service started, that kind of the relationship between the 10th plague, the killing of the firstborn, when they were decisively cast out of Egypt, and now this event of the crossing of the Red Sea is kind of like the relationship between D-Day in World War II, the day when they decisively won the victory in Germany, and VE Day, when Germany actually signed the treaty Uh, a year and a half later of unconditional surrender. That's what we're seeing here. This is the mop-up operation. This is the same analogy here of Jesus dying on the cross 2,000 years ago, the shed Passover lamb, and then we're waiting for VE Day. And I, I will tell you that next to the creation event itself, the crossing of the Red Sea is bar none the greatest miracle in the Old Testament. It is the event that God keeps on reminding Israel again and again about. Forty years after this event, he tells them in Joshua 24, 7, I put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. 800 years later. Isaiah said to the Lord in Isaiah 51:10, "Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over?" A thousand years later, after that, Nehemiah prays. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. Nehemiah 9, 9 through 11. And then this was a permanent fixture in their songbook. They sing about it in Psalm 74, 13, Psalm 78, 13, Psalm 106, 9, 114, 13. Why was this event so foundational to Scripture? Well, I've already said it, haven't I? This is a foreshadowing of the gospel. Just as a deliverer was born in Egypt for the Lord's people, so A deliverer was born in spiritual Egypt. The first deliverer was Moses. This one is Christ. Just as Pharaoh persecuted the people of God of old, so uh, the seed of the serpent continues to persecute true Israel, God's elect. Just as Moses spread his arms to heaven and the, the Red Sea tore open, so Christ spread his arms to heaven on the cross and that veil was torn in two. Israel was baptized in the sea and was saved, 1 Corinthians 10.2, and we are baptized into the blood of Christ and are saved, Revelation 1.5. So the Red Sea, it is both true history and the gospel promised in the Old Testament. So here is our outline this morning. We're going to see how salvation is the glorifying of God, how salvation is the recreation of man. And then, how salvation is the crushing of the dragon. So, let's look first. Salvation is the glorifying of God. Now, if you weren't here last time, Israel found themselves in an impossible situation. God led them backwards, and He led them right into a trap. On their right and left hand was a demon. And a castled city, and at their backs was the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his army was blocking the only exit. And they cry out against the Lord sinfully, forever leading them out of Egypt. And Moses tells them in verse 14, The Lord will fight for you. You only have to remain silent. So then we pick up now in verse 15 the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Now, of course, we actually don't see Moses crying out at all to the Lord, do we? Probably what's happening here is that God is addressing Israel's sinful cry to Moses because he's the human mediator of the covenant. In essence, what God is saying here is, look, the time for crying is over. Now is the time for action. Salvation is at hand. Halfway through verse 15, he says, tell the people of Israel to go forward. Hebrew word there is uh, pull up your tent pegs, break camp. It's time to leave. And then he tells Moses in verse 16, lift up your staff, Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That word means to cleave. It means to break in half. The Red Sea was to be cloven, broken in half. Not, not like this bit of the, the sea goes that way and that bit of the sea goes that way. No, it was to be two, two vertical walls of water. Uh, as, as high as modern-day skyscrapers, leading all the way to the other shore, cloven, broken. The ten, uh, what we saw in the ten plagues, that was the warm-up band. It's the band that you can like not show up for at the concert. I, I yeah, that I want the main show. This is the main show. Two point five plus million Israelites. We're passing through the sea, not on boats, but on dry ground, the end of verse 16 says. And as one commentator put it, the term for dry ground refers to something which is dry. <laughs> it's uh, withered. It's without moisture. It's drained. They weren't, they weren't even going to get mud on their feet as they were going to the other side. Now, Children, boys and girls, if you were Pharaoh, if you were Pharaoh, do you think following Israel into the Red Sea was a good idea here? It's like one of those horror movies where you're like, the monster's behind the door, and you're like, don't go in the door. Would you go into the sea? Of course you wouldn't. Uh, God had already destroyed Egypt with 10 plagues. Pharaoh's own son, his heir to the throne, was dead. Does it seem like a good idea to follow him? No. Then why did they? Look at verse 17. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. They pursued Israel into this tunnel of death, whom Yahweh, their enemy, was upholding with his power because God hardened their hearts to make them to do so. Dear congregation, this is judicial hardening. God was judging them. What does judicial hardening look like? Insanity. It looks like insanity. Go read Romans 1 with your children this week. Show them how when a people refuses to give thanks and honor to God, that God hands them over to a reprobate mind. Show them what verse 24, 26, and 28 looks like. You know what it looks like? Clown world. People, uh, the result is a world who does the most stupid things imaginable, things that lead to their own destruction on an accelerated speed. Does that sound maybe a little bit familiar? That's what's happening right here. God hardened their hearts in judgment because they had all the evidence in the world that Yahweh was the true and living God, they refused to worship him. And if God will not be honored by them willingly, he will extort glory from them in their death. Look halfway through verse 17. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. What type of glory does God have in view here? the glory of human acknowledgement. Verse 18, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. They shall acknowledge my glory. When I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen, certainly before Pharaoh's death and the Egyptians' death, they came to the terrifying knowledge as the waters were coming in that Yahweh was the true and living God, they saw his glory, they perished. Certainly the nearby inhabitants of Migdal and Baal Zephon, because this was done in the morning, the text says, they had front row seats to the glory of God destroying the Egyptians. And certainly Israel, who saw the inhabitants, the dead corpses of the Egyptians lying upon the seashore, saw the glory of God. This is God's all-consuming aim at the Red Sea. The liberation of Israel is not God's main goal. As glorious as it is, if the liberation of Israel was God's main goal, then ask yourself, why didn't he kill Pharaoh and free Israel in chapter 1? If God's main goal was Israel's liberation, why did he continue to harden Pharaoh's heart, prolonging these events, prolonging their slavery? Why did he lead Israel into this trap if liberation was his main goal? No, God's main goal is that all inhabitants of the earth would know that he is God. And there was no one like him in all the earth. Paul says this in Romans nine seventeen. He He looks back on this event and he says, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So that brings us then to our first principle, dear friends, The first principle is this, that the main benefit of our salvation is that we get to see the glory of God. That's the main benefit. The main benefit of our salvation is that we get to see the glory of God and enjoy it. Not see it in our death, but see it in our life. Everything that God is doing in the Exodus is to make his glory conspicuous. Every plague revealed something more about him. Every delay gave him opportunity to display his superiority. Every trap uncovered his supremacy. The Red Sea is yet one more place where God is saying, look at me, esteem me, admire me, applaud me, celebrate me. And right at this point, the sinful nature in our hearts, we raise this objection, don't we? God sounds like an egotist. It's all about you, isn't it? Praise you. C.S. Lewis, when he was an unbeliever, he said that this was the the most off-putting thing about God. He said that, quote, It was a miserable idea that God should in any sense need or crave for our worship. He said it was like a vain woman wanting compliments. How do we answer that? Because we have to answer it. Well, first we just say that human egotists are truly a pathetic sight, aren't they? They are pathetic because they think that their greatness comes from themselves. And Paul, of course, says, why, uh, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast of it as if you did not receive it? That's why when a person becomes a Christian, one of the things that they learn is they, they start to learn how to take compliments, don't they? Johnny, that was great. Johnny might say something like, thank you. And then what might he follow it up with? Praise God, right? But ask yourself, what should God say when we compliment him? Wow, God, that was amazing what you did. Should God deflect that? Should God say something like, oh, no, don't say that about me. I'm not deserving. No. He receives our praise precisely because he is worthy of it all. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. And the whole book is just like that. Worthy are you? Worthy are you? Worthy are you? It would be a lie if God were to say, oh, no. Give that attention to someone else. But there's something else. This was Lewis's discovery when he became a Christian. He said, quote, I did not see that in the process of being worshipped, that God communicates his presence to men. Even in Judaism, the essence of the sacrifice was not really that men gave bulls and goats to God, but that by their doing so, God gave himself to men. That's the essence of the gospel, isn't it? That God gives himself to men. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. Brothers and sisters, think about what's happening in this service right now at this very moment. What is happening? Who is the real beneficiary of this service right now? What is the Lord doing right now as we are praising him and acknowledging him and esteeming him? What is he doing? He's giving himself to us. In the very praise of God, he's revealing, communicating, sharing himself with us. He invites us to praise him in service precisely so that we could feast off the abundance of his house and drink from the rivers of his delight. Don't you see that God's main goal in sending Jesus Christ into the world was not simply so that we could have eternal life. Everybody has eternal life. Satan has eternal life. Pharaoh has eternal life. Eternal life is no life at all if we don't get to see the glory of God. That's called hell. God's main goal in sending Jesus was so that we could see his glory. And this is the very pinnacle of Jesus' high priestly prayer. In John seventeen twenty four. he said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, that's us, may be with me where I am to see my glory. Because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. The Father has enjoyed the glory of the Son since before the foundation of the world. And now the Son wants us to share in that same glory. So that's our first principle, that the main benefit of our salvation is that we get to see the glory of God. Secondly, salvation is the recreation of man. So let's turn back to our narrative. Uh, Imagine in your mind's eye the scene Israel's pulling up their tent pegs, and Pharaoh is just about to trample on them with his chariots as they're backed up against the sea, and then something happens, verse 19 through 20. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. This was not some generic angel who stopped Egypt's army from trampling Israel. It was the Son of God himself. Verse 24 identifies him as Yahweh. So putting those together, the angel of Yahweh, who is the messenger or the angel of Yahweh? It's the son, God's own son. And the lesson here is that Christ himself stands between us and the seed of the serpent. Satan can never, ever reclaim one that used to belong to him and bring him back under the domain of darkness. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one shall be able to pluck them out of my hand. Look at verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. I used to think this meant that it took all night for the, God can use natural means, all night for the wind to blow the waters back, but that's not what's happening The miracle was nearly instantaneous, but how long do you think it would take 2.5 million people to get through the sea? All night. So he performed the miracle instantaneously, and then he sustained the wind all night to hold the walls of the water up. But what's crucial to see at this point is the language of creation. The language of creation. Notice carefully, how does God put it? The Lord made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. Does that sound familiar? Keep your finger here. Turn back to to Genesis 1-9 if you have a digital device. I don't know how you do that, but turn back to Genesis 1-9. This is the third day of creation. And what does God say on the third day of creation? Let the waters, Genesis 1-9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. In creation, God gathered up the waters, that is, he divided them, and he made dry land appear. At the Red Sea, what did God do? He gathered up the waters, divided them, and made dry land. What does that mean? Well, it means that Israel was being recreated in this event. When God delivered them from Egypt, it is as if God was recreating the world in Israel. Israel. I mean, we've already seen the language of decreation, haven't we? God's judgment on Egypt was decreating Egypt. Each plague reversed a part of God's creation. So, for instance, God made all green things in Genesis 1. What did he do with those green things in the plague? Hail and locusts, wiped them out. God made the sea creatures in Genesis 1. What did God do in the plagues? He killed the frogs, he killed the fish. God made man in creation. What did he do in the 10th plague? He took that breath of man away. Every judgment is decreation. And especially here, as the Egyptians enter into the dark sea, their decreation is completed. Recall, what did God first say about the world that he created in Genesis 1-2? The earth was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Egypt was now going into the dark. They were going to be made without form and void. They were going to be decreated. Judgment is decreation. But redemption is recreation. Israel is coming out of those waters. She's being created brand new. And every part of this event whispers new creation. Listen to how Warren Gage puts it. The redemptive creation of Israel at the sea is cast in the same narrative style as original creation. Number one, as the pillar of of divine presence brings light into darkness. It's the first creation day. The waters were divided. That's the second creative day. And the dry land emerges. That's the third creative day. John Currid adds here, the biblical narrative teaches that the dividing of the Red Sea and the entire Exodus event for that matter is a second creation. The creation of Israel as God's covenant people. And verse 22 further demonstrates this. Look at verse 22. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea. What does Paul call this event in 1 Corinthians 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 2? What does he call it? calls it baptism. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 2, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Passing through the sea from death, Egypt, into life in the promised land was Israel's national baptism. And that baptism came with a new name. It says that they were baptized into Moses. They were shedding off the citizenship that they had with Egypt forever. And now they were named under Moses, who was the human mediator of the old covenant, so, so this crossing of the sea was a baptism. It was a renaming, a recreating of God's people. So That brings us then to our second principle. The second benefit of our salvation is that we are recreated in Christ Jesus. We're recreated in Christ Jesus. This is what the New Testament says everywhere. Ephesians 2.10 we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Salvation is recreation. We're given a rebirth, John 3, 3. We're, we are regenerated and renewed, Titus 3, 5. We are given new hearts, Ezekiel 36, 26, we're given, we're made new men, Ephesians four 24. we're given a newness of life, Romans 6, 4. We're, at baptism, we're given a new name, Matthew 28, 19. Consider what this meant for Israel. What did, okay, fine, it's recreation. What did that mean for them? What well, meant that their old life was put to death? In their old life, who was their master? Pharaoh. Who is it now? Yahweh. In their old life, they, they weren't even a people, they were Egyptian slaves. In their new life, what are they called now? A holy nation. In their old life, it was the laws of the Egyptians, those unjust laws that ruled their life. What laws rule their life now? The covenant. In their old life, they were slaves. In their new life, what are they? They are a kingdom of priests. In their old life, they lived under the house of bondage, but in their new life, where do they live? They live in the house of the Lord. They once served in temples of demons, but now they serve in the tabernacle of God. They once had no inheritance, but now they have the promised land. Everything changed when they crossed the Red Sea. It was recreation for them. Dear Christian, don't you know that when God saved you, he recreated you. When you cross that Red Sea, you pass from death unto life, and your life is entirely new, and it is a far greater work than your first creation. think about what your life was. Or if you were a covenant child born into the covenant, think about what your life could have been. Beloved, in, in, in our first creation under Adam, what was true about us? Because Adam was our federal head, we had all of his guilt and sin imputed to us. But in the new creation, when, when we crossed that red sea of Christ's blood, Christ became our federal head and all of his righteousness was imputed to us and our sin and guilt was washed away by the baptism of the Spirit. In old creation, what, were, what was happening in our day-to-day life, in our minute-by-minute life, what were we doing? It says we were storing up wrath for ourselves for the day of wrath. But in new creation, when we cross that red sea of Christ's blood, all of that wrath was propitiated. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and that he gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins, Loved ones, in our old life, in our old creation, we were sons of disobedience. But in the new creation, when we crossed that red sea of Christ's blood, we became redeemed children of God. Romans 8.15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Dear congregation, when we crossed that red sea of Christ's blood, we became new You are not like your unbelieving pagan neighbors. They still belong on that side of the Red Sea. You are now new. That's our second principle, that the second benefit of our salvation is that we are recreated in Christ Jesus. So let's look thirdly, how salvation is the crushing Of the dragon. Now, apparently, Christ in that fire cloud moved at some point so that the Egyptians could enter the sea. Look at verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Egypt's bloody pursuit of Israel is not a sign that evil is winning. It's a sign that evil is about to get crushed. So don't misinterpret providence, loved ones. Whenever it looks like evil is going to win, God is about to spring the trap. Look at verse 24. In, and, and in the morning... Watch in the morning. Watch the Hebrew here refers to the last military watch that soldiers take part in over the course of a night to prevent surprise attacks. There's three watches. This is the last one in the morning, but notice it's not Israel that's on watch duty. It's the Lord himself. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of the cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. The NIV says that he jammed up their wheels so that they had difficulty driving. So the Israelites walked through on dry ground, and the Egyptians... Whether due to mud, because water was maybe starting to come in from the walls or some other means, couldn't drive their chariots. They got stuck in the middle. And the Egyptians immediately interpreted this as supernatural. Halfway through verse 25, and the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. God fulfilled what he said in verse 18, that the Egyptians would know that this was the work of the Lord. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. This is the second time in history up to this point that The seed of the serpent would die by drowning. The first was the flood in Genesis 7. Verse 27, so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. This was so that the surrounding cities could see what happened. And as the Egyptians fled into it, uh, the, the Hebrew there is that they tried to escape. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. It's the idea of shaking them into the water. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Children, boys and girls, uh, hopefully I won't spoil this for some of you who have not seen this movie, but it's pretty old, uh, that, that movie, The Prince of Egypt. What happens at the end when the, the sea covers the army? Who's still alive? Pharaoh, right? He's pining for his brother, and Moses is pining for his brother. The movie is generally okay, but they totally get this part wrong. Pharaoh died. All of... The Egyptians died. Not one of them remained. Moses told them, the Egyptians that you will see today, you will never see again. Psalm 136.15 says that God overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the sea. They all perished. And verse 30 says that Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And this is that moment. Where you say, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, Israel was free at last. This was it. It was done. It was over. But there's a deeper magic, isn't there? Remember what scripture calls Pharaoh, he calls Pharaoh the dragon. Ezekiel 29:3, 32:2. And in doing so, he identifies Pharaoh the dragon with the with the greater dragon Satan. Revelation 12:9. When Pharaoh perished, the scripture is telling us that God was crushing the head of the dragon. And this is precisely what Psalm 74:13 says. In the KJV, it says, "Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength; thou crushed the heads of the dragons in the waters." Isaiah says the exact same thing in Isaiah 51, 9 through 10, but this time he's speaking to the Lord. He says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generation of long ago. So he's talking about 800 years previous. He says, was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces? Rahab is the symbolic name for Egypt. Was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Now, why would Scripture identify the death of Pharaoh with the crushing and the piercing of the dragon? Because it's pointing to that first promise in the gospel, in Genesis 3:15 where the seed of the woman Christ would crush the serpent's head. This is a foreshadowing of the final destruction of the seed of the serpent. It's pointing to VE day. That brings us to our last principle. The third benefit of our salvation is that the dragon and all his seed are crushed. The dragon and all his seed are crushed. The progressive defeat of the dragon has been happening in all of history since the fall. The dragon seed perished at the flood, Genesis 7. Here at the Red Sea in the person of Pharaoh, Exodus 14. In the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia. Greece and Rome in Daniel 2, 31 to 35. Human history is the progress of the kingdom of the risen Christ growing and the seed of the dragon perishing. Pharaoh was thrown into a sea of water here, but there's a day of coming when the dragon will not be thrown into a sea of water, but into a lake of fire. Never to rise again. Never to enslave or abuse the people of God again. I mean, beloved, what a day that will be. We, we have it so great here in, in America. We, we don't. We don't have to run from Fulani herdsmen like our Christian brothers and sisters in Nigeria do. We don't have to hide underground in China or in North Korea like our Christian brothers and sisters do. We don't have to worry about our children getting beheaded by Muslims like our Christian brothers and do in Somalia. We are somewhat numb to the wickedness of the dragon. But here we are promised, and in Revelation 21, 10, we, 20.10, we are promised that there's a day coming when the dragon and all of his seed will drown in the lake of fire. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. so we conclude with, with both a warning and the, the greatest comfort. First, the warning. This story at the Red Sea is not a myth. It is true history. This event really happened. What that means is that no one can escape. All of life is a Red Sea moment. You cannot escape this war. You're either on the side of the dragon or you're on the side of Christ. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And all who belong to the dragon will be judged on the last day. Pharaoh and his army, they tried to flee. They tried to escape, but they all perished, every single one of them. And so it is for all who belong to the dragon on the last day. There'll be no escape. There'll be nowhere to hide. There'll be nowhere to run. All of God's enemies will find that the sea of wrath, of God's wrath, will fall upon them in that terrible day. The dragon will fall into the hands of the living God. And on that day, people will wish for death, but it will flee from them. Dear friend, if that is you, there's only one hope for you. You must do what Israel did. In verse 31, we read that Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. That is your only hope of escape if you still belong to the dragon. Turn to the Lord in fear and in faith, meaning make the Lord your God. Your only fear, the one that you fear the most and grab a hold of him by saving faith. And the scripture says, Jesus promises that if you do that, you will pass through the sea unharmed from death to life. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. He will not come into judgment, but he is passed from death to life. Lastly, this doctrine is for the greatest of all comforts. Take comfort, dear Christian. When God saved you, when you passed through that red sea of Christ's blood, the dragon's head was crushed so that he can never truly harm you again. And some of you might be saying, oh, that's actually not true of my experience at all. I'm being harmed by the dragon all the time. Are you? Or are you just pinned up against the Red Sea? Or are you running through the sea and you're interpreting the dragon chasing you as the dragon winning? When the dragon chases you into the sea, what happened? He lost. He's setting up, he's springing the trap. Or perhaps you're saying, well, maybe the dragon's not pursuing me. I don't feel that. I just feel the dragon inside of me. I smell like dragon. Dragon words come out of my mouth. My heart has scales on it often. I, I know what I deserve. What I deserve is I deserve to be thrown into that sea. You know what you, you do when those thoughts come to your mind? You do what Luther did. You agree. Yep, that's true. My sinful nature is as bad as hell. I, I'm a dragon in my heart, but do you know what happened? I wasn't drowned. Do you know why I wasn't drowned? Because someone was drowned for me. Do you know how the scripture describes the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ? It describes him as drowning in deep waters as the floods engulfing him. And he cries out in Psalm 69. He says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. But you know what the difference is between Jesus in the sea and the Israelites in the sea? Jesus wasn't saved. God didn't save him. God didn't save him because he was being substituted for you. He drowned in the sea as a dragon, as a dragon type, so that you could be saved and you could come out on the other side. Loved ones, that dark, wicked dragon in you is wicked bad, but he's already been swallowed up. God cast all of your sins and all of my sins into the depths of the sea. When Jesus was nailed to that cross, the dragon has been crushed. There's nothing left for you to fear, but God alone. Fear God alone. Look at your sins. They're they're cast in the sea. They're dead upon the seashore. They can't come back to life to haunt you, to enslave you. Not one of them remains. Not one. And that's why we can sing this song that we're about to sing. Christ, the true and better Moses, called to lead a people home. Standing bold to earthly powers, God's great glory to be known. With his arms stretched wide to heaven, see the waters part in two. See the veil is torn forever, cleansed with blood we pass now through. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to see. The relationship between D-Day and V-E-Day, that the lamb has been slain, the 10th plague has fallen. And now, Lord, we're waiting for V-E-Day when you will finally destroy every last one of your and our enemies. And Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you that our dragon nature was slain on the cross, that Christ drowned in our place, that he drowned in a sea of God's wrath so that we could come out on the other side cleansed, made new, recreated. Receive all the honor and glory and praise now. For we pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.